Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. Award-winning novelist Lily King is the author of Euphoria, one of 2014's best-reviewed books. King's popular page-turner is inspired by and loosely based around the New Guinea fieldwork of famed cultural anthropologist Margaret Mead. The New York Times Book Review singled out Euphoria for a coveted spot on its annual 10 Best Books list, praising King's work as a meticulously researched homage to Mead's restless mind and a considered portrait of Western anthropology in its primitivist heyday. The book garnered the author a host of other honors as well, including the first ever Kirkus Prize for fiction. Lily King has also published three additional novels, including The Pleasing Hour in 1999, a riveting debut honored with a Barnes & Noble Discover Award, and Father of the Rain in 2010, winner of the New England Award for Fiction. Thank you so much, that was so nice. Hi, thank you so much. What a pleasure to be here. I have never been to Stillwater, and um, it is a gorgeous town. Very, very beautiful. Um, I was saying to Tim, who drove me here, that uh, we have a lot of, I live, I live in Maine, and we have a lot of towns in Maine that look like that, but they're all empty. <laughs> I mean, they're all the, you know, the stores are empty and the mill towns are in hard times. Um, and, and this is, it was amazing to see a town that is absolutely clearly thriving with a lot of shops that I'm dying to go into. Um, <laughs> So thank you so much. Thank you um, to the library for having me. Um, it's really quite an honor. Uh, so I thought I would tell you a little bit about um, this novel, Euphoria, and how I came to write it, how I stumbled upon Margaret Mead, and, um, and then a little bit about my process of writing it, which wasn't exactly straightforward. Uh, and then I have a little, little um, show and tell, and then I'm happy to, and I, I will read something, I'm not sure what yet, and then, um, and then I'm happy to answer all of your questions, because I really, I like that part the best. So I'm always kind of rushing to get to the question part. Um, so I was just starting out writing my third novel, Father of the Rain. I think it was um, uh, September of, 2005 and 
my, I had moved to Maine with my family, my husband and my two kids a couple of years before that, and my friend Cornelia came to my door and said, I'm going to take you to my favorite bookstore. And so she drove me into Portland and she took me to a store called Casco Bay Books. And um, it was going out of business. She had no idea, but it had just started to go out of business and there were all these <clears throat> um, closing signs and it was a very sad moment. Uh, and it was that time when all of the bookstores were were starting to close up and, uh, and that was another victim. And so we went in and I felt like I had to buy something, you know, just kind of for her. And I looked around and, you know, there was, everything was sort of picked, you know, the stock was just kind of picked away and there was nothing, there was kind of some Carl Sagan and there was um, <laughs> some old cookbooks. And, uh, and I, I finally found uh, old, biography of Margaret Mead and I bought it for five dollars and I thought I'll never read this but I'm, I'm just gonna do this for Cornelia and so I got home and I put it by my bed and uh, and eventually I picked it up I'm pretty you know probably within a couple of weeks and um, I was surprised how compelling it was it was great biography it's called Margaret Mead a life um, and I got to chapter 11, and I think chapter 11 is called The Closest to Madness I Ever Came. And, uh, and, and in it, she, so what I really liked about this biography is that sometimes, you know, you start a biography and you really are excited, you know, you kind of want just a chip that like puts all the information in your head instead of having to read about the grandparents and the parents and then finally on page 200 the subject is born. And, uh, but this was like, and by um, chapter 11 she was already on her second marriage and she was 31 years old and uh, it was the end of 1932. and. She was in Papua New Guinea, and she and Rayo Fortune, her second husband, um, were, they had gone up, uh, up the Torricelli Mountains for a year on the, in the, to this tiny, tiny village on a cliff, and, um, and she described them as being um, people who were so mal malnourished, malnourished they had no energy. And, uh, and her husband was always kind of off on these 20-day hunts and she was home with these low energy people and Margaret Mead had a lot of energy and uh, and she wasn't having a very good time and they were there for a long time and finally they came down where they really wanted to be was the Middle Sepik River um, but there was another anthropologist there an Englishman named Gregory Bateson and um, and so they were kind of trying to avoid him they didn't want to make him feel like you know they were encroaching and um, and so then they went to this um, other Found, they found this other tribe called the Mundigamore, uh, and they only stayed there for about five months. Um, and M M Mead was just not comfortable there. They were a pretty violent, aggressive tribe, and um, so they decided to go to Australia. And on their way out of on their way out, they they thought, well, let's just go say hi to Andrew. Uh, excuse me, to Gregory Basin, um, and. Uh, <laughs> Um, Ray O'Fortune had known um, Gregory Bateson and he, I don't think they had gotten along all that well, and, um, and, but he agreed and, um, and so they went and Mead says in her memoir that her husband got very drunk very quickly. It was Christmas Eve and 
she and Gregory Bateson talked for 36 hours straight and she fell madly in love with him. So I learned that in this chapter, chapter 11. And I also learned that, um, that he begged them to stay and he found them another tribe nearby. And actually it wasn't all that nearby to him. I think it was about seven hours away, but he had a house built. They, they chose this tribe called the Chambri, um, or the Shambuli is what they called them, but now they're called the Chambri. And then um, Bateson had a house built kind of nearby. And uh, it's said that there's a, there was a canoe boy who paddled you know, between the two delivering notes. And when they interviewed him, he said that he paddled morning, noon, and night delivering <laughs> notes back and forth from um, Gregory Bateson to Margaret Mead. And so very quickly they got involved in a um, really uh, tense, confusing, um, just fraught love triangle. And you know they had malarial fevers, and they had these incredible intellectual connections. All three of them, really, they were all just so happy to have another person to to knock their ideas around with. And I think Mead and Rayo had been having a really hard time alone. They didn't work well together. They didn't agree on anything. Um, he had very, very different ideas about um, his own society, let alone the societies that they were. Um, trying to trying to observe, and uh, and then they had at one point they had this huge breakthrough, and they wrote her mentor Franz Boas, and they said we're coming home. We've had a huge breakthrough, and um, and then that sort of all broke down. And I just the, the, all this ha this happened in this chapter of about twelve pages, and I got through it, <laughs> and I was like. Oh my God! You know, somebody's got to write this novel. That is, that is a, that's a really good story. I'm not writing that novel. I write about families in New England um, who live in houses with running water. Um, I do not. I don't do historical. I don't do huts. I don't do science. Um, I just was like, no, thank you. Um, but the problem was that I couldn't get it out of my mind. I just had to learn more. I had to find out more. And, and Father of the Rain was a, was a, a hard book to write. Um, it would kind of, uh, it would come out really fast. Well, for me, <laughs> it's not very fast for other people, but for me it was fast. And then it would just stop. And, um, and it would kind of, it, it was, um, it's not a fully autobiographical book, but it, I definitely used a lot of my emotions from my childhood to write that book. And, um, and it, it, I had these little kids when I was writing it, and um, it could really take me down, because I would really tap into um, some things I experienced as a child, and, and it would come out of me, and then, I, and then I would just have to stay away. I'd have a complete aversion to it. And I knew that just for my own kind of well-being, I couldn't go that far down. Because um, I had these kids, and I had to, I had to um, stay sane <laughs> and, and relatively happy. And, uh, and so I would take breaks. And so while I was taking these breaks, I would just start reading about Margaret Mead, and I read um, the book she wrote about that time, Sex and Temperament, and I read her memoir, and I read this wonderful biography about Gregory Bateson by David Lipset um, that made me fall madly in love with him. And, uh, and I just had so much fun doing that, and I kind of got this green notebook, and I started taking notes, and 
I would start to, I would take a note about a real thing and then I'd kind of hear them talking or I'd see a scene or I'd describe something and then I'd think, well, that could happen and then that could happen. And the whole time I'm telling myself, you are not writing that novel. You are absolutely not writing a novel that takes place in 1931, 1932, 1933 um, about three anthropologists. You, you didn't even take one anthropology class in college. <laughs> so, but at the same time, I just, I, you know, um, I, would, I had this kind of relationship with this material and this notebook and my imagination that seemed to you know, kind of take off, but I, I just treated it as something that I was doing while I was waiting for, to kind of recover from my last scene of Father of the Rain. Um, and, uh, and it's funny, when I started out, I had this kind of image of Margaret Mead, and maybe a lot of us have this image of Margaret Mead, and Joan Frank, um, wrote this review of Euphoria for the San Francisco Chronicle a couple of years ago, and she said that her image of Margaret Mead was a doughy, dotty brain box, kin in warbles and waddles to Eleanor Roosevelt and Julia Child. And that's exactly, exactly my image. Um, and this, all this research really changed my idea about Margaret Mead. I mean, she was, um, she was not always middle-aged, for example, and um, she uh, was incredibly radical. Even she would be really radical from our standards um, today. And uh, I couldn't even, I, I had to make my character now, you know, a little tamer than Margaret, a lot tamer than Margaret Mead was, um, because I felt like no one would believe it. <laughs> and so um, I also felt like it was just, it was, it was really too much from the book and I had to kind of streamline it in some ways. And so I, when I finished Father of the Rain, I decided, all right, I'm just gonna give it a try. And what had happened was a couple of years before that, um, after I had done a lot of research and I was still thinking about it but not doing anything, I had gotten these four sentences and they had just, they had come to me, they had actually come to me on a train from Zurich back to a little town in Italy where my family and I were living at the time. And um, I had been visiting a friend who was writing an article in, in Zurich and uh, I came back and I, and I was drinking tea and I was on this train and I just wrote these sentences. And they're pretty much verbatim the first sentences of the, of the book. And once I had those, I really, you know, it was like going from um, liquid to solid, you know? I just, I felt the novel, I felt the voice, I felt something. And, um, and so I, you know, I carried those little sentences around and then when I decided to just kind of give it a try, um, I, I at least had those sentences and I also had this green notebook. But I didn't really, know what to do with the green notebook because I'd never had notes for a novel before. I mean, usually I have like something written on the back of an envelope and maybe a, you know, another thing written by the side of my bed and that's, that's the beginning of my novel, you know. But I had this whole notebook of ideas and I didn't really know what to do with them. And, um, and so I decided, oh, well, real researchers, you know, get index cards. And uh, so I went to Rite Aid and I got a stack of index cards and I wrote out all my notes and on the other side I had little thematic ideas and I put them all in little groups and, um, and then I piled them all up in a big stack and I sat down with my, with my notebook you know, to write with and to start the novel and I was like, I just stared at this big stack of index cards and I'm like, what am I gonna do with this? And so somebody said, oh, well, you have to get Scrivener, which is um, a writer's software program. And so um, I went and I got Scrivener and. Um, I, put, I wrote, I had typed in all of my um, index cards into Scrivener, you know, and I, I, 
Scrivener has kind of like a way to um, have an outline and, and so I could have all my thematic ideas and then all the little things below it with bullet points and everything. And, um, and so I did all that and then, and then I had that. <laughs> I still had this blank notebook that I had to write the novel in. Um, but at least I had written out, I had written out my notes now three times and so they were kind of in my head and, and I started writing and I, I had this idea that I would just basically stick to the story as I, as I could find it. The thing is, is that there, there isn't a whole lot of information about the, that five month period um, when they were together, the three of them having this love triangle. And so I knew I had to fill in a lot. And so I thought I would just, I would stick to, to what happened and then I would just fill in the rest with my imagination. And so that's kind of how I started it. But then I started, um, really I, I started it and I, she was gonna be called Margaret and he was gonna be called Gregory and all that sort of thing. And uh, that lasted about three pages. And then I just, I had to have my own characters and I had to be free to make up whatever thing in their past or um, in the present that I, I just had to, I felt um, a little chained to the, to the facts, even at the very beginning. And so I gave myself permission to make things up. And then, um, and then I wrote chapter two. And chapter two was really just supposed to be a little experiment um, about uh, Gregory Bateson. And I had read, possibly, possibly, he might have tried to commit suicide at that time right before he met them because he had been in the field for two years and he didn't know what he was doing and he was very alone he was very isolated and um, he has a really tragic backstory which I just I found very very moving and uh, uh, his he was the youngest of three brothers and the first brother died in the First World War and the second brother died in the most public suicide um, at the time that it ever happened in England. He had shot himself um, in Trafalgar Square and uh, because a woman had rejected him, he'd gone and delivered her a poem and, uh, and she had rejected him. And, and uh, he, I think uh, along with that was the fact that their father had been this very serious um, biologist and he had expected all three of his sons to, to go into the field of science and kind of be in a laboratory for the rest of their life. And, and um, Gregory and his brother didn't want to do that. And his brother Martin had wanted to be a, a poet and a playwright and his parents didn't approve. And so that, I think that was sort of played into it. And so, so Gregory was trying to sort of doing science, but they thought it was a soft science and not a hard science. And so anyway, um, all of that came into play, and I just wanted to just kind of dabble in chapter two to figure out um, what his state of mind would have been. Um, but I started that chapter, and I just felt so close to him. Uh, I just heard him and felt him um, more than I heard and felt Nell, I think, because even though I changed her name and given myself permission to, to you know, create whatever I wanted to about her, I still felt... Um, the presence of Margaret Mead um, and but for whatever reason I felt much freer with Bateson and so then I really played with how I was going to tell the story and whose story was this really and I had you know on my computer I had 
I think seven experimental drafts, you know, experimental draft number one, experimental draft number two, and I kept on, I'd get to a certain point in the novel and then I'd start again and I would tell it this way and I would tell it from her point of view and then I'd tell it from all three of their points of view and then I'd tell it from, um, you know, w one of the, the um, TAM people that they were studying, I'd tell it from, from his point of view and, uh, and then finally I, I, I kind of concluded what I sort of knew all along but I was in denial about it that um, that really it's Gregory's it was it was my character Andrew Bankson's story and um, and everything that you learn is really told through him even the chapters that that seem like they're hers it's really all his in hindsight and I and then I was able to to really play around with time and um, jump ahead at certain moments and th those were probably the most enjoyable parts for me writing it was was um, was kind of getting out of the 30s the 30s um, I, I kept on being frustrated that they didn't know about World War II <laughs> and so then finally you know when it was his story and I could go ahead and then he could reflect back on World War II I was like oh I was in heaven um, and uh, um, I, I knew, I, the real story is that they, that they leave and they go to Sydney and they actually stay in Sydney. A, a lot of um, the accounts will say that they were there for this amount of time and they went to Sydney and then they all caught, um, well, uh, Gregory Bateson took a ship home to England and Margaret Mead took a ship home to America and Rail Fortune stayed in Australia. Uh, but really what happened is that they, in, they got to Australia in June, the early June, and then they didn't leave until September. And they stayed and they were just trying to figure things out. And it was very funny because they, um, they all rented rooms in the same rooming house. And Mead and Bankson were on the Excuse me, sorry, I'm really mixing things up. Mead and Gregory Bateson were on the second floor, uh, where also Rayo's ex-girlfriend Mira and her two daughters were, but Mira moved up with Rayo on the third floor. And then Bateson's old girlfriend Steve came, and, um, and she was hanging out with them for a while, and uh, Mead wrote a letter home to Ruth Benedict, her ex-lover, old mentor, and colleague at Columbia, and she said, Steve doesn't know anything about sex. She's so inexperienced, we've had to teach her everything. <laughs> I do not know what that means, but I, I do think that um, there, by some account, Steve fell in love with Mead um, as well. And it just all was, was um, fascinating. And then they did, then, did, then Mead did go home and he and, um, uh, Bateson went home and Rayo stayed there and they got a divorce and she did marry Gregory Bateson and they had a child, Mary Catherine Bateson, who is a uh, wonderful anthropologist and writer in her own right and they were married for 12, 12 years and then he fell in love with someone else and they got a divorce. And I was like, eh, not the greatest ending. Um, and so I always knew that I would have to have a different ending. Uh, I, I, for a long time, a long time, I didn't know what that ending was. And in fact, the, my first draft, I went back and read it a couple of years ago, and I was so surprised um, what I'd written. It's so bad. 
And uh, I had completely forgotten that it had a completely different ending. And then uh, when I handed it in, I handed it into my writers group and to my agent, and it had it ended where now um, uh, one of the characters sees their mother after getting off a boat, and that's where it ended. And then uh, I was driving on the highway, I was meeting a friend for lunch, I was turning off the highway and boom, like this whole other scene, a huge leap into the future um, came to me. And I'm like turning off and I'm scribbling, you know, I have a little notepad where I'm driving and I'm writing and you know, <laughs> I'm getting off this exit and, and the whole thing is there and I typed it up that night and I printed it out and I sent it to my agent and I gave it to my writer's group, I'm like, this is how it ends. <laughs> and so um, it was really, the book was really writing itself right up until the you know, very last minute. Um, so, all of that said, I think maybe um, I'll just read. I'll just read a couple of pages of it, and then um, and then I'll show you a little bit about my process, and then I'll answer some questions. So I'll just read from the very beginning. As they were leaving the Mambano, someone threw something at them. It bobbed a few yards from the stern of the canoe, a pale brown thing. Another dead baby, Fenn said. He had broken her glasses by then, so she didn't know if he was joking. Ahead lay the bright break in the curve of dark green land where the boat would go. She concentrated on that. She did not turn around again. The few Mambano on the beach were singing and beating the death gong for them, but she didn't look at them a last time. Every now and then, when the four rowers, all standing, calling back to their people or out to other canoes pulled at the same time. A small gust of wind struck her damp skin. Her lesions prickled and tightened as if hurrying to heal in the brief dry air. The wind stopped and started, stopped and started. She could feel the gap between sensation and recognition of it and knew that the fever was coming on again. The rowers ceased rowing to stab a snake-necked turtle and haul it into the boat, still writhing. Behind her, Fen hummed a dirge for the turtle, too low for anyone but her to hear. A motorboat was waiting for them where the Uat met the Sepik. There were two white couples on board with the driver, a man named Minton whom Fen knew from Carnes. The women wore stiff dresses and silk stockings, the men dinner jackets. They did not complain about the heat, which meant they lived here, the men overseeing either plantations or mines or enforcing the laws that protected them. At least they weren't missionaries. She couldn't have tolerated a missionary today. One woman had bright gold hair, the other eyelashes like black ferns. Both carried beaded purses. The smooth white of their arms looked fake. She wanted to touch the one closer to her, push up her sleeve and see how far up the white went the way all her tribes, wherever she went, needed to touch her when she first arrived. She saw pity in the women's gazes as she and Fen boarded with their dirty duffels and their malarial eyes. The engine, when it started up, was so loud, so startling, that her hands rose to her ears like a child's. She saw Fen flinch to do the same, and she smiled reflexively, but he did not like that she'd noticed and moved away from her to talk to Minton. She took a seat on the bench at the stern with the women, What's the occasion, she asked Tilly, the gold-haired one. If she'd had that hair, the natives would never have stopped touching. You couldn't go into the field with hair like that. They both managed to hear her over the engine and laughed. It's Christmas Eve, silly. They'd been drinking already, though it couldn't have been much past noon, and it would have been easier to be called silly if she hadn't been wearing a filthy cotton shift over Fen's pajamas. 
She had the lesions, a fresh gash on her hand from a sago palm thorn, a weakness in her right ankle, the old Solomon neuritis in her arms, and an itchy sting between her toes that she hoped wasn't another batch of ringworm. She could normally keep the discomfort at bay while she was working, but it kicked in hard watching these women in their silks and pearls. Do you think Lieutenant Boswell will be there? Tilly asked the other woman. She thinks he's divine. This one, Eva, was taller, stately, bare-fingered. I do not, and so do you, Tilly said. But you are a married woman, my dear. You can't expect someone to stop noticing people the minute the ring goes on, Tilly said. I don't, but your husband certainly does. In her mind, Nell was writing. Ornamentation of neck, wrists, fingers. Paint on face only. Emphasis on lips, dark red, and eyes, black. Hips emphasized by cinching of waist. Conversation, competitive. The valued thing is the man, not having one necessarily, but having the ability to attract one. She couldn't stop herself. Have you been studying the natives, Tilly asked her. No, she's come from the twilight ball of the floating palais. I have, she said, since July. I mean, the July before the last one. A year and a half up that little tributary somewhere, Tilly said. Good God, Eva said. A year first in the mountains north of here with the Napa, Nell said, and then another five and a half months with the Monbanyo up the Uat. We left early. I didn't like them. Like them, Eva said. I would think keeping your head attached to your neck might be a more reasonable goal. Were they cannibals? It was not safe to give them an honest answer. She didn't know who their men were. No, they fully understand and abide by the new laws. They're not new, Eva said. They were issued four years ago. I think to an ancient tribe it all feels new, but they obey and blame all their bad luck on the lack of homicide. Did they talk about it, Tilly said? She wondered why every white asked about cannibalism. She thought of Fenn when he returned from the 10-day hunt, his sad attempt to keep it from her. I tasted it, he finally blurted out, and they're right, it does taste like old pig. It was a joke that Mombanyo had, that the missionaries had tasted like old pig. They speak of it with great longing, Nell said. The two women, even Longbraze and Eva, shrank a bit, and then Tilly asked, Did you read the book about the Solomon Islands, where all the children were fornicating in the bushes? Eva! I did, and then Nell couldn't help herself. Did you like it? Oh, I don't know, Tilly said. I don't understand what all the fuss is about. Is there fuss? Nell said. She'd heard nothing about its reception in Australia. I'll say. She wanted to know by whom and about what but one of the men was coming around with an enormous bottle of gin, refilling glasses. Your husband said you wouldn't want any, he said to her apologetically, for he did not have a glass for her. Fenn had his back to her, but she could see the expression on his face just from the way he was standing with his back arched and his heels slightly lifted. He would be compensating for his wrinkled clothing and his odd profession with a hard masculine glare. He would allow himself a small smile only if he himself had made the joke. Fortified by several sips, Tilly continued her inquiry. And what will you write about all those tribes? Oh, it's all a jumble in my head still. I never know anything until I get back to my desk in New York. She was aware of her own impulse to compete, to establish dominance over these clean, pretty women by conjuring up a desk in New York. Is that where you're headed now, back to your desk? Her desk, her office, the diagonal window that looked out onto Amsterdam and 118th. Distance could feel like a terrible claustrophobia at times. No, we're going to Victoria next to study the Aborigines. Tilly pulled a pout. You poor thing, you look beat up enough as it is. We can tell you all 
We can tell you right here all you need to know about the Abos, Eva said. It was just this last five months, this last tribe. She couldn't think of how to describe how to describe them. She and Fenn had not agreed on one thing about the Mambanyo. He had stripped her of her opinions. She marveled now at the blankness. Tilly was looking at her with a drunk, stepless concern. Sometimes you find a culture that just breaks your heart, she said finally. Nellie, Fenn called at her. Minton says Bankson's still here. He waved his hand upriver. Of course he is, she thought, but said, the one who stole your butterfly net? She was trying to be playful. He didn't steal anything. What had he said? What had he said exactly? It had been on the ship coming home from the Solomons in one of their first conversations. They had been gossiping about their old professors. Hadn't liked me, Fenn had said, but he gave Bankson his butterfly net. Bankson had ruined their plans. They'd come in 31 to study two New Guinea tribes, but because Bankson was on the Sepik River, they'd gone north up the mountains to the Anapa with the hope that when they came back down in a year, he'd be gone and they'd have their pick of the river tribes whose less isolated cultures were rich with artistic, economic, and spiritual traditions. But he was still there, so they'd gone in the opposite direction from him and the Kiona he studied, south down a tributary of the Sepik called the Uat, where they'd met the Mombanyo. She had known that tribe was a mistake after the first week, but it took her five months to convince Fenn to leave. Fenn stood beside her. We should go and see him. Really? He'd never suggested this before. Why now? And they'd already made arrangements for Australia. He'd been with Haddon, Bankson, and the butterfly net in Sydney four years ago, and she didn't think that they had liked each other much. Bankson's Kiona were warriors, the rulers of the Sepik before the Australian government had cracked down, separating villages, allotting them parcels of land they didn't want, throwing resistors in jail. The Mambanyo, fierce warriors themselves, told tales of the Kiona's prowess. This was why he wanted to visit Bankson. The tribe is always greener on the other side of the river, she often tried to tell him, but it was impossible not to be envious of other people's people. Until you laid it out neatly on the page, your own tribe looked a mess. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I thought I'd just show you real quickly, um, just because I, I have the luxury of being able to to um, bring in my writing process because I write by hand. And uh, I write exactly the way I wrote. I started writing short stories in high school. I took a creative writing class and I always had to have a spiral notebook and um, kind of closely lined paper, narrow lined paper if possible. Um, and I always wrote in pencil. And we had, to, we had to deliver a short story on my teacher's desk every Monday morning. Um, from January to June or something like that. Uh, and it had to be three and a half pages and it had to be a complete short story in itself. Uh, and so I got used to that and I would write them every Sunday afternoon, of course. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, you know, my process is really very similar to that. Uh, um, and, and what I like about it is that I I can cross things out, but I, I, I never use the eraser. I just cross things out so I can see underneath, and usually that's kind of the thing I'll often go back to. But on the computer, I erase it because I, it's, I like it to be clean, you know? And um, then I always want my words back, and so I don't like to do that um, in, with my first draft. And I like to write in the margins. I like to draw pictures. If I have a dinner party, I need to see who's sitting where, and I can draw that all out, and I'm, I'm often, sort of uh, figuring out things kind of um, physically on, in the margins um, with little drawings. And, 
I don't know. I just I, I particularly like it because I feel like when you're the thing that stops writers in their tracks is the critic. And you, what you really want to be doing with the first draft is just uh, really nourishing and encouraging the creator inside you without the critic. Um, I, I went to school all my life with writers who were so, so good, um, and they never wrote books. And it, I think it's because their critical self was so strong inside them um, that that it kind of bullied the creator. And I like to think of my little notebook, my handwritten notebook, as just a place where no one's going to see it. The critic can just stay out of the room while I'm writing, and I can just try to be um, my most forgiving creative self and just put down whatever comes out. And it, it's not going to be perfect. It's not necessarily going to be good at all. But I just let myself kind of blah onto the page. And then, you know, when it's time to get it onto the computer, then I can allow the critic to come in and I can work with the critic um, in a, hopefully a harmonious way, oftentimes not, but um, to kind of come up with something better than what's, what's here. And, uh, and I just, for me, it's just a good process. It's a, it's a real rewriting process and not just a revision process. It's not cutting and pasting, but it's really rewriting every single word, you know, kind of like they used to do in the old days when you wrote it on a typewriter and you had to keep on rewriting it and rewriting it over and over. That's just, it's a good step for me. And then, um, and then when I finally get it all on the computer, then I'll print it out and I'll step away from it for hopefully you know two or three weeks if I can stay away. And then I'll try to return to it as a reader and just go back through it and and you know mark it all up and mark it all up. And I'll do that many many times until I, there's nothing else I can see that I that I know how to fix and so then then I'll give it to my writing group and I'll give, give it to my husband first actually and then my writing group and then um, and then my agent and then and then finally my editor will get it um, and then I, what I also like about keeping a notebook is I, I'll keep notes in the back I, I save a section just for for notes about what might happen because when I'm writing chapter one I, I get ideas for chapter Four. I don't know. You know, I get ideas for what might happen down down the line, and I need some place where I can put them. And then I can also, you know, the notes I take um, at night or in the car, um, they all can go into my notebook. And then uh, when the notes get really crazy, and I can't remember what I've done, I have I make a timeline. So this is my timeline um, for this book up to a certain point. Um, and, and so I just write little, they're, they're not organized. I mean, it's just little ideas, little moments that I can kind of work toward. Um, E.L. Doctorow has this really great quote about writing, which is, I'm going to bastardize it a little bit, but um, writing is like driving at night. You can only see three feet in front of you, but you always get where you're going. And so these are kind of my little three feet, just little, 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 little moments like, you know, he, he gives her his dead brother's glasses or something like that. And then it's funny, on this timeline, uh, the very last thing I have is, have some sort of culminating moment. <laughs> Because I had no idea what was going to happen. Um, 
And then, and then my very, very last thing that I do, and my last page of my notebook is I keep a little writing log, and so I write, I write, uh, I write the date, and then I write how many pages I'd written, um, which is usually like you know one or one or a half page or four lines. Um, a really good day, day for me is four pages of this book. That's a very good day. Those don't those don't happen very often. Um, and while I was writing this book, my my kids were still young and. Uh, there are a lot of writers out there who say, I'm going to sit down and I'm not getting up until uh, I've written seven pages or, I don't know, 5,000 words or something. And I, I, I show up, I try to show up every weekday and I do what I can, but I got to go pick up my kids at the end of the day. And so I can't, I can't stay until I've necessarily written what I want to write. Um, but I just kind of keep myself honest. It's my little punch clock in the back of the notebook. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Lily King and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what King considers the culminating moment of her novel. Well, I already knew that I wanted to get to that breakthrough scene um, with uh, with the grid, and but that wasn't it. I knew um, I knew there had to be at least. Wait, I gotta check that. I gotta make sure that that's right. I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the squares, which is what they call them in real life, um, and uh, and then and then what else does it say here? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's always depressing to read this because I'm like, oh, that was a good idea. Why didn't I do that? That was a better idea. Um, yeah, I mentioned, um, let will just give you an idea of some of my ideas for the culminating moment. Malarial fevers, fear, paranoia of cannibalism, uh, mounting tension in the village over some sorcery, um, and a lot of other things. <laughs> um, so, I, but I did know Basically, to be honest with you, I knew something really bad was going to happen to one of the characters, but I kept on switching around who that was going to be. <laughs> so I, I had that in my head. Lily King mentioned that her husband is often the first reader of her work. Is he also a writer? Yes, my husband is also a writer, and he's a great reader, and, and a very, very supportive reader, I have to say. He's kind of my, my easiest critic. <laughs> He was really when he when we were when he was reading this we were um, traveling to to California to see my mother, and uh, and he was sitting behind us. We I think we had three seats with you know my kids my two kids and I were in one seat and then he was behind us, and uh, and he was just reading and then I remember we got off the first flight to make a connection, and he and he just looked at me, riveting. <laughs> and he was, he was my first reader, you know? And uh, it was so exciting. I'll, I'll, I mean, I think nothing was better than that moment. Because I really, I could, I, I felt like he wasn't just being nice, you know? I felt like he'd, he meant it. And um, that was so exciting to me because I really thought the book was such a disaster. So. <laughs> it's a funny thing because 
when you don't have any readers, and I really didn't have any readers, I mean, no one read any part of it, um, I, I don't know, it, it, uh, it, it feels a little bit like an echo chamber. It feels like you, nobody else is going to understand anything you're saying, anything. And, and if, you know, and so, and also you're building, you know, you're, you're building this thing. And so if they don't understand the first page and what you're trying to do, or they don't, they don't feel it like the way you feel it, or you think you feel it, or you think you're trying to get them to feel it. Um, it, it all fails, and so and so it's just a, a terrible, terrible risk um, that you're taking. And uh, so it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel treasured in that way, strangely. Uh, and then and then you get a bunch of different readers and everybody has a different reaction to it and you really don't know what you've written. <laughs> this question is how King conceptualized the beginning of the book where the protagonists encounter dead infants in the river. That's always a tricky question because um, uh, I never, I, I, my research and my imagination is sort of blended together so early on in this process, but I definitely read that, and um, I believe I read it about the Mundigamore um, that Margaret Mead was studying. That really was a quite a um, violent tribe, and they they had a lot of infanticide. They, as I said in the book, I I, I attributed a lot of the Mundigamore to the Mumbanyo in the book, and. Um, they killed their twins, they killed their firstborn, um, and they wouldn't bury them. They would just kind of throw them in the woods or throw them in the river. And I, I'm quite sure that that's what I read and that's what I used. Uh, and I knew it was gonna be really strong for a first line of a book. Um, but, I, you know, I, I feel like you gotta tell the readers where you're going and, and and so the first line's always a good place to put it. <laughs> this audience member asks what King's research process was like when writing this novel. I did a lot of reading. A lot of books came to my house um, in Maine. And uh, I did some internet research as well. And I traveled to the Museum of Natural History in New York, um, to the Margaret Mead Wing, and that is pretty much um, the extent of my travel. I, I, every now and then I thought about going to Papua New Guinea, but I, there were a number of reasons. My kids were really small. Um, Port Moresby is a very dangerous place, and um, I, I didn't have enough confidence in the book to lay out that kind of cash <laughs> to go on that trip for a book that I felt was going to sit in my drawer for the rest of my life. Um, so I just, I just didn't do it. This question is if King worried about Margaret Mead's daughter's reaction to the book. Yeah, I did. I definitely did. I was in denial, really, about um, it 
coming out and people reacting to it at all. And so I think that kind of denial helps you write something like that. Um, but then suddenly I did have a book and I did have a publisher and um, my editor and I decided that we would send her the hardcover the minute it came off the press, which is what we do. We did. We sent. She was the first person we sent it to, and um, I wrote her a letter, trying to, you know, explain um, what I had done. And she was incredibly kind. She wrote me right back and was really, really gracious about it and very supportive. Wonderful. And then, subsequently, I met her at an event and we had dinner together and this car ride together where she talked all about her parents and I was just completely enthralled and wish I, I could have spent you know the next 24 hours with her or 36 hours <laughs> was, it was really interesting another audience member asked Lily King about Margaret Mead's abusive relationship so she, Margaret Mead was in um, an abusive relationship with her second husband um, there she told a friend that he had caused a miscarriage um, in the field at one point, and there are letters that she's that she wrote to Ruth Benedict um, while she was in the field during this particular time with the with the two men, and um, and she said that the whole time Gregory and I have been scared that Fen, um, sorry Rayo, um, would he had a pistol and that he would use his gun on her and then on Gregory and then shoot himself. And then there's also this fragment of a letter that she never sent but that was preserved after she left Sydney and she was going back to the States. Um, she wrote him and she said, I wouldn't have had, if you hadn't hit me where it showed, I wouldn't have had to leave you. Um, which was so, such a poignant, you know, terrible statement um, for a number of reasons. So, um, so yeah, and it, it is, I mean, I, I think a lot of um, experts would tell you that somebody can be very strong in one part of their life and then, um, you know, it's, it's really an abusive situation is not about strength or weakness, you know. This question asker inquires what Lily King is working on now. So I haven't, I, I'm, I'm in the middle of a, I'm on page 171 <laughs> of a new book, and uh, I do not have a good soundbite for it. I, every time I talk about it, it sounds like the most boring book you have ever heard of. So um, it is not historical. It's um, set in the 90s, random. Um, and. Uh, I mean, maybe that's historical I, I, at this point. God, <laughs> time's moving so quickly. Um, and that's all I can say, because otherwise I will bore you to tears and everybody will be asleep. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what inspired King to write Father of the Rain. Yeah, I mean, as I was saying, I mean, yeah. Father of the Rain, definitely. Um, uh, I really, really wanted to... to uh, try to explore um, a father-daughter relationship and the father, you know, being a very uh, kind of mm, committed alcoholic. And, uh, and that is something that I had in my past and, um, well, actually in my, my whole life. Um, and I, I wanted, I, I really wanted to write about a family 
Um, I feel like so many of the books I read about a family breaking up is set over the course of a, of a season or a year or something. And, and this book takes place over the course of 30 years. Um, because I th feel like families break and they just keep breaking, you know, and they're, 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 um, the effects of that original breaking um, just, you know, go on and sort of echo. And I really wanted to, to track that and, and to track um, what happens in, with a, um, a daughter who wants so much to have a relationship and, uh, and what that feels like over the course of 30 years. Okay, well thank you. Thank you all so, so much. That wraps up our Stillwater Public Library event with Lily King. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Julie Rivette at Stillwater Public Library on Thursday, April 20th. The Stillwater Public Library will feature Dashiell Hammett's 1929 detective classic, The Maltese Falcon, as the focus of the big read. In conjunction, we are pleased to host Hammett's granddaughter and scholar, Julie Rivette, editor of multiple books on Hammett and autobiographical Falcon protagonist, Sam Spade. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.